the Neon Confidential Podcast. Is this thing on? <laughs> okay, should we get started? Yes, let's get started, Bing. <laughs> okay, um, Genghis Cohen, and first of all, his name is Genghis Cohen. Yep, I always it's not my stage name. <laughs> not your stage name because i've known you for 11 years now 11 years i and am your oldest client oldest client uh but when i say your name i just kind of keep it moving and people are like wait his name's genghis and i'm like and his last name is cohen and they're like shut the fuck up <laughs> <laughs> no. yeah it's like okay. mongolian jew there's not many of us <laughs> okay let me get through your bio so genghis cohen owner of machine guns vegas is a premier firearms facility that allows first-time shooters to advance firearms enthusiasts to shoot full auto slash machine guns on the Las Vegas Strip. And he's a former officer in the Royal New Zealand Army. Do you know this bio, by the way? I wrote you it. You wrote it. Okay. <laughs> Fuck, I don't know. And is best known for his background in Vegas nightlife industry um, and for his involvement in projects such as Taboo, the world's first ultra lounge. We have to talk about that. Uh, the Rainbow Bar and Grill and Cat House at Luxor Hotel and Casino. Genghis has an extensive knowledge of customer service operations, marketing, and promotions focused on the Las Vegas tourism market, which I can attest to all of that, especially because I wrote it. Um, he also has worked on a variety of international tourism projects in Africa, the Caribbean, the Middle East, and the South Pacific. So <laughs> I don't even really know where to start. I will say that I always refer to you and many people refer to you as the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> yeah, I know. even people that don't know you do that now. Yeah, definitely. I, and I actually have a buddy, Grant, and I'll be somewhere, and I'll get this random call. He'll go, where are you right now? Because he goes to bars and bets people that, I bet my buddy's in a crazier place than your buddy. And he's won money from me, which I'm happy to say. And so did he call you last week when you were on your motorcycle excursion of, mm. where were you, Vietnam? I was in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he tries to watch my Instagram so he can figure out like where I am. So it's you know, getting his profit margins higher on these bits that he's putting in bars with people. Yeah. So, and so let's start back from the beginning. I feel like we have so much to get into, and this is an interesting interview for me because I know everything about you. So it's kind of like, you know, asking these questions that I'm already going to know the answer to, but I just think that everyone else would find this very fascinating as well. Um, so how did you wind up in Las Vegas? Let's start from the very beginning. So um, I was running nightclubs in San Francisco Bay Area um, and I came out here and I got to know the people, uh, specifically a guy by the name of Mike Milner who was director of nightlife at MGM and Candace Carroll who was like his number two. Um, and I just became friendly with them because they were in the club business, we were in the club business in, Sandy, in San Francisco. Um, and then they said, hey, look, we're opening this new project. We need a director of operations. Are you interested in maybe the position? So we started sort of negotiating and talking about me moving to Vegas. So the thing that was the hardest thing for me about that move was I was taking like a massive pay cut to come out here. But I also thought, you know, Vegas could be a great opportunity. And I think back then the only nightclubs were Light, um, Rum Jungle. I haven't even heard of that one. What year was that? 2002. Okay. Yeah, so Light, Rum Jungle, um, Voodoo Lounge, um, who else was out there at that time? Oh, and Studio 54. So there was like only wow. a handful of nightclubs. Mm -hmm. So it was a really small community. So they said, we're going to do this thing called an Ultra Lounge, which I'd never heard of before. But, you know, we're spending a crazy amount of money. The casino's behind it. The whole of MGM Corporation is behind it. It's this new thing. So I came out here. I spent a bit of time, and I really liked the idea and the concept. So that's sort of what made me move to Vegas. So I came to work for MGM to open Taboo. That was in October of 2002. So describe your time at Taboo. Like, what was that like? If there was only three clubs and this is that what why why is it an ultra club like what makes it an ultra club just the size i think the term ultra lounge was just a term that they used it, mm -hmm. it was Marketing. a lounge yeah but it was it was a very i think at that time it was the most money ever spent per square foot we had a guy by the name of jeffrey beers who was a very famous designer he did the design of it um we had some technology in it that was back then was totally cutting edge technology from the lights and things like that we had an ice bar i mean I was set with the task of designing the bottle service. So we went and found this company that CNC machined basically blocks of ice to hold a bottle. We just did all this cool, crazy, crazy stuff. So budget, we had a huge budget to do it. 
Um, mm-hmm. And it only held like 350 people. It was small. Wow. So, and what was the music like back then? Because this is before, you know, Vegas was paying DJs hundreds of thousands of dollars a set, right? You know, well, it was really interesting. Like I came from the San Francisco um, nightlife market where we didn't really get a lot of big name DJs there. I mean, we did, but not in the clubs that I was running. I remember one, one of the first things I did was, you know, this guy shows up at the front door and his English was really shitty. And uh, they're like, Genghis, he doesn't have ID. I'm like, dude, you look like you're 15 years old. He goes, no, no, I must come in. I'm like, dude, I can't, you don't have ID. You look like you're 15. So you have to get ID. So he goes away, comes back. And it was the DJ Darud who I'd never met in my life. <laughs> who was our DJ that night. I just oh didn't God. realize he looked like a 15 year So old. he wasn't 15. No, no, no. He was like 20 to 21, 22. Because I so. remember when we were doing the PR for Hyde at Bellagio, that's when Tom Cruise's son was a DJ. And he, in fact, was under 21. So he had to have an escort, like, come in and out with him. <laughs> anyway, we're, cross, we're yeah. cross-contaminating stories here. <laughs> so... Uh, so taboo and then, then rainbow bar and grill was after that. So I did taboo and then, uh, I went to run club paradise, which was a strip club across from the hard rock. So these are, this is when I hear the craziest stories from you is when you were there. Yeah. So I, 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 I did the, I did that. I did the rainbow bar and grill and then I also did cat house with, uh, so it was kind of interesting. Um, I, I got to know the owner of Club Paradise really well. Um, I never, long story short, a mutual friend said, hey, you need to go meet this guy because he's looking for someone to come and run his strip clubs. I'm like, buddy, I'm working in the casino business. I'm like wearing a suit to work every day. I'm in this corporate life. I want to go with the corporate sort of structure. And he said, I want you to just meet the guy. Just meet the guy. So I I meet the guy. So just just a great guy. Yeah. Um, Sam's a just an awesome guy. Couldn't say enough great things about him. Um, and we just became really good friends and he offered me the job. I was like, no, 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 I'm staying this. But over a period of time, we, be- you know, our friendship grew and he became a great guy. And I was just like, sure, I'm going to give this a try. It's something different. It's a piece of nightlife. We had a lot of discussions about my concerns about running a gentleman's club, you know, and sort of the, I, I guess the stereotype that comes with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so I went to run that club paradise, which was an enlightening experience to say the least. Describe, set the scene. There you are in your office, surrounded by naked women who are coming to you with problems. Yeah, it was It was just, it's like herding bipolar cats. It's like just, you know, the, the, because you've got to realize in a strip club, you've got, you've got two types of customers. The girls are your, the, like the dancers are your customers. And then also you've got customers, customers coming in. So you sort of got to cater to both. So it's this balancing act of managing both customers mm-hmm. who are who are, you're like a middleman almost um so often i would be dealing with like dancers upset with customers customers upset with dancers and then just managing the process around that i think when i was running the club we had like 1600 girls on the books but um did just, you date any of the entertainers no 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 after i stopped working there yes but while I was working there, no, you know, you just can't shit where you eat. So I just, you know, you can't, it was like my golden rule is, um, you know, I, I couldn't date any of them. And honestly, I think it in that job role, it just makes your job so difficult. If, if you do that, I, I sort of, it was important for me as best I could to try and gain as much respect from the girls as I could. And Definitely. You, you're not going to do that if you're sleeping. With them, so. Can I, I feel like I want to describe the first time that we ever met each other. And I feel like you're going to feel like, oh God, yeah, go I ahead. don't even know if you remember this. So, and now, and now Genghis and I are best friends. So this is like a very funny introduction because I feel like you are definitely not this person anymore, but for me, it was entertaining. So as the owner of Machine Guns Vegas, cause you are our client, um, we set up and it was like this new Lux gun you know speaking of like you said ultra club we were calling like this like an ultra lounge meets like firearms experience for people where you know for everyone that's listening machine guns vegas does not sell um firearms you don't permit off firearms to come in that are other people's it's basically just a tourist experience where people come in have a bunch of fun shooting machine guns and then they leave um so no guns in or out essentially and so this is huge news. It's like we got you guys in like New York Times, LA Times, 
CNBC, everywhere. Everybody was covering this like, you know, lux- luxury gun lounge. Um, and when you go in, there's like flat screen TVs and there's leather couches and it's not like a cement wall, you know, gun range that piece. So it's, it's sexy. It's Vegas. It's all of these things. Um, and really good press coverage. So around this time we had uh, playboy radio. <laughs> Do you know where this is going? <laughs> We had Playboy Radio set to come out to the range and they were going to bring a bunch of Playmates. Okay, great. This is still good coverage. It like is on brand. You know, it was like, you know, sexy girls and guns and you that sells. Um, the direction of marketing has since changed, but this is how long ago? Eight, 10 years ago. 10 years, 10 years ago. ago. So <laughs> I this is the first time that I ever saw you in person. <laughs> okay. So we have all these Playmates that are scheduled to come and... I get a phone call that says, can we, and it's from the producer of this, of Playboy Radio. She's like, we have to increase the number of Playmates by six. And I'm like, we can't do that. Like we're literally in the private lanes. That's going to, we're going to bombard the RSOs. And he's like, and she said, well, actually um, the owner of Machine Guns Vegas is the one that's requesting it. I'm like, what are you talking about? You had gone to a pool, a pool club. Yeah. And met a bunch of Playmates. Yeah, that's right. And they told you that they were going to shoot guns. And you're like, what's the name of the place? They're like Machine Guns Vegas. and But only half of us are going. And you're like, oh, everyone can just come. (laughs) Yep. No, I did do that. I remember. And you know who I was with? I was with Robin Leach. Oh, man. R.I.P. Because I I knew. uh, Yeah. Great guy. And I knew knew Robin. And he actually was the one that invited me to go to that. Okay. So he said, hey, come with me to this pool club. It's a playmate thing. And I was like, yeah, sure. It'd be great. And, um. That's funny. Wow, that was a long time <laughs> so ago. So I'm like scrambling. I'm like the little like publicist that doesn't want to mess anything up. I haven't met the owners. And then you just like come walking in surrounded by playmates. <laughs> like, who is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> why is he here? And why did he just What is day? happening? Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so anyway, that's a little background for everybody. Yeah. But again, I feel like that was probably just like a normal thing for you. And, and especially like the Vegas culture embraces that. Right. And it's, and if you were running a gentleman's club, that was just like another day in the life for you. Yeah. I mean, running. So in between the gentleman's club and machine guns, Vegas, I was, um, I had a gold mine and diamond operation in Africa. Right. So I was living in Africa for like three and a half years prior to that. Well, on and off in Africa. So I was going back and forth. So wait, you're right. Like nightclubs, strip clubs and then like in between you went to africa to do the diamond yeah i took a break from nightlife totally and took a break from that whole vegas scene because i just I, was, I just had enough of it like when you i think i'd done it six or seven years at that point it burns you out a bench, you know you're not going to bed till five seven o'clock in the morning you know you're waking up at two <laughs> there was the a recent study that was talking about the circadian rhythm of people who work in nightlife hospitality industry in particular and it said something like it takes like seven years off of your life, like for every, I don't know what the metric was, like for every five years that you do it or something. Yeah, I would believe that. It's really, it was, took me three years just to get back on a regular sleep schedule. Oh my God. You know, and we both know so many nightlife people who've lived that life, you know, and it was, especially the strip club, because the strip club was like, I had to have, I was there usually till anywhere between five and seven o'clock in the morning. So it was just like super. And that was like, so how did people promote nightclubs before? Like, I guess cell phones and texting were like a thing back then. But like, I just feel like you that- had promoters. You had guys who would come in and they'd make little flyers and they'd walk around and hand these little flyers out to people. And P- I mean, PR, PR and advertising obviously came into it. Um, I think the biggest thing for Taboo when I was running it was we got on the cover of Time magazine. Whoa. Which... I think we're the only nightclub in history to ever be on the cover of Time. Do you know what the title was? What I've got a picture of it, yeah, but we were on the cover of Time magazine, which was really cool. So when we're running it, yeah, that was a big deal to be on the cover of Time. For sure. So like, Right now, that's a big deal. Yeah, so that was sort of the claim to fame of the time. So it was cool. It, I, like The neat thing for me is that a lot of the people that are now senior executives in nightlife, senior executives in hotel casinos, you know, people we know, guys like, Brian Bass, you know, I was a young, I was a young manager starting out at MGM. I think he was a night food and beverage manager, you know, and now look where Brian is. And, you know, a lot of, you know, uh, Natalia Basio, who Natalia was a wait- uh, cocktail waitress at, M- at um, Taboo, 
she now runs the front door at Excess, has done for years. You That's, know, I tell everyone that Vegas is like the littlest big town that there is, and yep. and it's like there's two people that I can't really go anywhere with because I'll you'll just get stopped, and it's you and John O'Donnell. It's, and it's like you guys have been in this city in this industry for such a long time that if we go to any sort of like event networking event nightlife event it's like you'll get stopped every five steps so i just kind of have to i mean and yeah. whatever i meet everyone and we shake hands and la-di-da but you know a lot of people here uh and then that brings me to uh, i want to go back to your africa blood not blood diamonds <laughs> <laughs> no 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 we're blood diamonds. <laughs> diamond mining kind of rolls off the tongue um because I feel like you don't just know people here in Vegas, you know people all over the world. And I can say that because if you have people in town from Africa or wherever, and we all go to dinner, New Zealand, it's like, they're just the most interesting individuals ever. So how did that happen with Africa? And so, um, Africa really was an interesting one. I, I just, I'd had enough of nightlife. It was 2008. So the economy took a shitter oh, right. and I was just like, I just need a change, you know? And I, prior to being in nightlife and hospitality, I'd been in the military. So I was like, well, I'm used to going to shitty third world countries. You know, I can, I can deal with going to bad places in the world if I can make money doing it. So, um, started off with Sierra Leone, um, which was a really, it's definitely a third world country, lovely people, really lovely people. Um, but obviously a war-torn, a war-torn country. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started doing gold there, uh, buying gold, buying and selling gold, and then buying and selling gold in uh, Ghana. And then also I, used to, I started doing some work in Gabon. But you knew someone that like introduced you? I had, I had a friend who was over there selling, who was over there buying gold, and he said, hey, buddy, I'm making money buying gold. Do you want to come and try this out? You can actually make money doing it. I said, yeah, great. So I went over and started doing gold. But what I discovered is everywhere you find gold, they have diamonds. But I didn't know anything about diamonds. So I sort of got a quick lesson in diamonds. And then we started doing diamonds as well. Mm -hmm. And it was, I mean, I wouldn't say it's the greatest money-making thing I've ever done. But definitely the greatest, uh, one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. Uh, for sure. Yeah, because you, f- I feel like you said you met like a tribal leader or like really paint the picture for the people of like what that is like in a third third world country. So with Af- diamonds, Africa in particular is quite interesting because you have political leaders in Africa, and they sort of they govern the country. Yes, but the countries really, for example, Ghana are, is really governed by um, by the chief system. So they have paramount chiefs, sub chiefs, sub sub chiefs. So Texas would have a paramount chief and then every little county in Texas would have a, 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 a sub chief, you mm-hmm. know, and he would work under the paramount chief. Mm-hmm. So what I quickly learned is that I need to go make friends with the paramount chiefs. So once I'm friends with the paramount chiefs, then I, you know, I can operate and buy gold in their areas. What I discovered is, is that once you're friends with a paramount chief, it's like being friends with God because I mean, I would literally rock up to these areas and I just hand over a satchel of cash and their guy would just go and come back with gold and change. <laughs> and it was always perfect. Never got ripped off. No one ever robbed me. It was, it was great. Um, once I, once I built those relationships. Yeah. And then what was the like security like, like did, were you armed I was, all the time? I was kidnapped once. What and, the hell? <laughs> and then I couldn't, after that kidnapping, they allowed me to have a firearm, but they wouldn't let me have a firearm before that. What happened when you got kidnapped? I had about what? six or eight guys break into my house with shotguns and machetes and they... And like they targeted you. Like yeah, it wasn't they, like a random break-in. Nah, no, they targeted me. So um, my business partner was out of town at the time. So I was there. It was just me and a, a South African friend of mine, actually. And um, yeah, they just came in and they sort of kidnapped me. for. It wasn't long. It was like an hour. It was just no big Did they deal. like put a bag over your head and the whole thing? No, or, like, they put a they... shotgun in my mouth. Oh, that yeah. seems... beat me with a machete a little bit. Holy shit. Have I ever shown you those photos? No, my back's all fucked up. But what? Yeah. So, um, so that was pretty crazy. But uh, that was probably the craziest thing that happened there. Um, but it was just like at the gold mine, you'd have to do, you know. And it's I don't know. It's kind of like anywhere. It's there's always kind of people have always trying to make a buck. So like the local the local witch doctor would put a spell on the gold mine. So then you'd have to hire that witch doctor to come and take the spell off, which meant that you had to buy a cow and they had to bring the cow and a chicken because they had to bring the chicken. And then they had to 
cut the chicken's throat and throw it in the air. And if the chicken landed on its stomach, then they could sacrifice the cow. But if the chicken landed on its back, then they couldn't sack. So imagine trying to build a fucking business around this. I just so, want to <laughs> remind you that before you said that entire ridiculous sentence, you said, it's just like anywhere. <laughs> Well, that's not like anywhere. The, the, the theory of it is that it's just, you know, everybody's trying to get, got their hand in for the pie. So we, we would have to do these sacrifices and I'd have to sacrifice the chicken and hopefully the chicken landed on its stomach so we could sacrifice the cow and then they'd cut the cow's throat and bleed the cow into the river. And then all of a sudden all the village would show up and we'd have a big barbecue and everybody would eat the cow. This is bizarre yeah so that's and that was like a monthly to bi-monthly occurrence that we had to do in order to keep the gold mine running what yeah it was pretty crazy we did all kinds of interesting things did you have problems like getting out of that industry when you were like ready to is it one of those things where you just you just walked away you're like i'm gonna book a flight back to vegas now i'm just done with this yeah it was just i was sick of living in africa and you know it was just it, it it just it was a hard grind and I mean, I, some of it was cool. Like I love riding motorcycles. So I, it would be a 45 minute off-road motorcycle ride to the gold mine every day. And then a 45 minute off-road motorcycle ride through the jungle out of the gold mine. So that was cool. Like I liked that part of it. And, you know, it was, there was some fun stuff. I, I, you know, um, I had some kids working that when I got there, they had kids working for, um, for different gold miners mm-hmm. and I wouldn't hire the kids, but I made this deal with the kids where, I, I said, okay, tell me who your teacher is. So I spoke to the teacher. I said, righto, if the kids show up to school and everything, then they can come and work for me after school. So the kids would come and work after school. And of course, they'd have real simple jobs like cleaning buckets and things like that. But I'd pay them, but they love that. But they, but I said, but if they don't show up to school or they misbehave in school, you call me and then they won't be able to come and work for me. See, I just think it's bizarre that you don't want to have kids because I feel like you'd be such a good dad. But then again, you can't have a title with, you know, most interesting man in the world with kids not doing what you do, your travel schedule and your... Yeah, I, I really like kids. It just never really fitted into my lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, can And I and I was, when you were talking about the being kidnapped, I was thinking to myself, if there's anybody that I would trust to be in a situation like that, it would definitely be you. And so now I'm going to tell the story about when I left my car, my garage door open. Oh, you were such a dick. <laughs> all right this is like such a ridiculous story but also like you in a nutshell and how protective you are of your friends and people you care about also so Genghis and I of course well we lived in the same neighborhood you've since moved out um a little historic neighborhood that's like right between the strip and downtown and we lived in the same neighborhood and what happened there was SWAT cars so I was, I okay. just got back into town, mm-hmm. picked my truck up at the airport and I was driving back into our community and there were cop cars everywhere. And when I pulled into our gate, the gate guy said, he goes, Hey, it was a gate guy, gate lady, I can't remember. But anyway, he said, Hey, just so you know, two guys just shot someone in the parking lot at the CVS drugstore, which is right next door. Some, and they ran into this community with guns. They had, they were armed in this community. So that's why was, the, the SWAT vehicle was driving around and there were police everywhere in the community. And I was like, oh, so, so the guy goes, just keep an eye out. I was like, okay, cool. No worries. So in the meantime, I had just gone to Whole Foods and I saw the SWAT vehicle, but I'm like, do to do like pulling in the neighborhood. I'm like, that's weird. I've never seen one of those before, but I just continue on my merry way. Uh, should I tell my part first? <laughs> oh, uh, well, uh, let me tell my part okay. and you can okay, continue. Okay. All right. So, so I immediately text and call, I think I text Meg and go, Hey, just so you know, make sure you keep your doors locked. This is happening. If there's any problems, call me, I'll come over. No response. And this is like nine o'clock at night. I'm like, eh, it's and kinda- as your publicist and as a publicist in general, especially one that represents high risk accounts, like a gun range. I have to be available 24 hours. And so it's very rare that if anyone texts me that I don't answer, but continue. Exactly. And so I didn't get it. And I was like, I'll give her a call. So I called and you still didn't answer your phone. I'm like, eh, it's okay. It's late. She's probably doing something. No worries. So I get home and I'm like, man, I'm hungry. I need to get something to eat. And I thought to myself, yeah, but if I'm going to go out in the neighborhood, there could be these guys. So I grabbed my vest. I have a, like a bulletproof vest and it's gunned up with everything poor training of course of course and i grabbed um my assault rifle <laughs> he just grabbed his assault rifle well, everyone. because 
you know, I just I get it. I, I'm like, I'm, I'm like, hey, if I see something bad happening, I you'd be the person to stop it from well, happening. I, I, I definitely want to at least try and help. So I'm, I'm like, I threw this shit in the back of my truck, and I thought I'm just going to go do a drive through and get something to eat. And I thought, you know, what, on the way, I'll go over to your house and just knock on your door, make sure you're okay, and tell you to keep your door locked. So I. So in the meantime, <laughs> this yeah. is like this is back and forth. It's so funny. So my neighbor, and I'm going to totally call him out, Tyler. God love him. He's just a jolly old guy, but he's like one of those people that just thinks that like me casa es su casa and he can just walk in whenever he wants. And and he was doing the right thing and like being a gentleman and like he's got a daughter and and so he sees that I just got back from the grocery store. So I've got my trunk open and I'm carrying, you know, how I'll, I feel like everyone does this, but you try to like see how many bags you can like, you got to do it in one trip. <laughs> <laughs> gotta get all the bags yeah. in one trip so he sees me doing this and he's like hey hey let me help you and i'm like no 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 i got it because i know if he comes in that now i'm gonna be cooking dinner for the entire fucking neighborhood <laughs> and so i'm like no 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 and he's no i insist so he gets the rest of the bags and now he comes in with his daughter and he's like you really got to teach you know my daughter how to cook how to eat healthy and so now here we are like having this very pleasant conversation Please continue with your side. Right. So I show up to Meg's house at now almost 10 o'clock at night. Her garage door is open. Her car is parked in her garage, but the door to her car is wide open. Ajar. Ajar, mm -hmm. yes. And there are no lights on in the garage. Now, so... And there's just been like a murder. <laughs> it, well, it's just been a murder across the street. And just so, you know, my sort of one of the ways that people get break into people's homes is they sit and wait for them to go in their garage. And before they go in their garage, they walk in. And since that happened now, I, while I'm in my car, I obviously turn the car off, but I shut my garage door and I'm like looking in my rearview mirror to like, see if there's anyone that's going to like slide in or something. It's my worst fear. Right. And okay. that's, so that's the way people. So when I saw this, of course, I'm like, fuck. I'm like, that does not look good. And I and, and I will say, I've shown up to your house, I don't know, probably hundreds of times. Hundreds. And the garage is always closed. Totally. So I've never seen this situation before. Mm -mm. So I'm like, with everything going on, so I'm like, fuck. So I get out of my truck, put my vest on, get my rifle. Okay, wait. So now <laughs> let me go. This like juxtaposition of like viewpoints of like how this unfolded is just absolutely ridiculous. It's like this situation couldn't have gone any other way. So I'm in and I'm like washing bell peppers in the sink and I'm talking to like Tyler's daughter. And, and so I've got this like coffee bar area with like two bar stools. And so Tyler and his daughter are sitting there and I'm washing at, at my kitchen sink and I can, there's a window and it's dark, like you said. So there is a reflection behind me. So I can see from my window behind me. And all I hear is like a man's voice like shout what the fuck and i see like the muzzle of a fucking gun and then i see i look over at tyler and his daughter who were sitting in the coffee bar and all i'm thinking is i'm gonna have to dive across and like shelter his daughter from whoever is in my house right now um and i see tyler's face and like all the blood is just drained out of his face immediately he is like as white as a sheet um, his daughter Riley is just like looks <laughs> like just she has no idea what's happening. And so So I'm outside, I see the scene, and I'm like, okay, well fuck, I gotta go in now. So So I clear the garage, garage is good. I I open the garage door into the house, pie that door, it's good. Look around the corner and I see Tyler. I'm like, and that's when it was like, fuck. <laughs> I'm like, Jesus Christ, I was so, I wasn't real mad. I was actually more relieved, but I was like, that's, God damn it. That's what you said. And that's the first thing that I heard. I was like, oh, why is the person saying God damn it? Like, did he just not want to rob like a, ma a man? Because he could only see, you know, or maybe there was a kid. Anyway, that was yeah, funny. That was funny. Ty the look on Tyler's face and his, actually his daughter was far less concerned than he was. T Tyler didn't stay for long after that. No, it's like, <laughs> Your friends are fucking crazy. <laughs> but like, I really liked it because I have like, he doesn't just come in my house all the time anymore. <laughs> Why you decided to open uh, a gun range, um, your stance on, on firearms will kind of cover a variety of topics because I feel like 
um, most people, when they think about a, a gun range owner, they think of like a gun slinging hillbilly <laughs> hillbilly that like owns with a, a coon dog and a <laughs> yes, yes insert whatever visuals but when you know and part of the reason how we've been able to position you as an expert in the industry is because you're very level-headed and you also believe in more stringent control on firearms which is not synonymous with a gun range owner so um i guess talk about first why you decided to open up a gun range um, we decided to open a gun range because um, my two business partners, Tim and Jim, we we eventually, we, we were sort of just wanted a training business. So we just wanted to do firearms training. And um, Tim had uh, Tony Robbins as one of his clients. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were teaching Tony's wife, Sage, how to shoot. That was the goal. Just mm-hmm. teach her how to use a gun because they have a home um, in Idaho and she spends a lot of time there, but it's sort of out of the way. And he just wanted to have some sort of protection in the house, which I think is a great idea. Right. So um, Tony came to Vegas and we were going to just do a familiarization for his wife, Sage. So what ended up happening is we went to one of our, what became one of our competitors, gun ranges, and they had a VIP room and, and it was just a shit show. I mean, first of all, Tony's like six, eight, so he stands out. Everybody knows who he is. And there was just no, like, discretion. Like, he, you know, the owners were coming in and asking for autographs while we're trying to, like... Oh, my God. ...familiarize his, his wife and stuff. And it was just a... It was a nightmare. So, I said to Tim and Jim, I said, do you know what? We need to open our own gun range. Because the only way we're going to be able to do this because there's nothing in town that's going to really allow us to do what we need to do with the type of clientele that we have. Mm-hmm. And then I had some celebrity clients as well. So, I was like, you know, it's just not going to work. So, what I did is... We, we started Machine Guns Vegas. And initially we thought, well, we don't have enough training business to really warrant the expense of building. So what we'll do, why don't we build a tourist gun range? We won't buy or sell guns or ammunition, but we'll provide really safe experiences for tour- firearms experiences for tourists. And then we can do training there as well. And then sort of it'll offset the cost. What we didn't realize is how big that market was for tourist gun ranges. Um, and of course it just took off and because machine guns Vegas was like the fourth gun range in mm, town. I think I mean, we were, we were in the, in the first, like the original one uh, from a tourism perspective, I think was, um, gun store. Mm-hmm. And then a few others came in and as those other ones came in, um, we, you know, I don't know how many there are now, but we were one of the. I think there's like 12 or 13, yeah. which is wild. Yeah. And now we're, we were one of the first sort of three or four of the tourist-specific gun ranges. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you guys opened this gun range, and was it that quick? Like, how long did that process take? It, it took us a little while to get it going, but once we... I mean, obviously, marketing PR was a huge part of that. Once we got that rolling... Shout out. <laughs> yeah. Shout out, Neon PR. Um, <laughs> So that was a massive part of it. But once we got it going, it started to do really, really well. And, you know, it just started to steamroll and things went really well for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the range does really well now. Um, now we do outdoor shoots. We partnered with uh, helicopter companies. We partnered with uh, car companies. We do all different kinds of things now. So now we just don't do the guns. We actually provide total packages where people can shoot guns, drive a Ferrari, fly to the Grand Canyon. We do like a bunch of stuff now. So we've sort of expanded on that base business. And then... We still have a training business as well. Um, so we still do training and we do work for movies and we also do work with video games as well. So we've, we've sort of branched out into a few other areas. And the outdoor shoots are amazing. Just for people listening, you can actually buy a package and blow up a car. Yeah. In fact, you should have BB on the show. Because- I should. BB is a character. Yeah. I yeah. love her so much. BB's awesome. Uh, she runs our outdoor shoots and she's definitely someone that um, you should have on the show. She's yeah. A real character. So explain, like, without getting too deep into politics, because that's just not what I, I want to even do, um, kind of what you believe as far as, like, being from New Zealand and what gun ownership looked like in New Zealand, what crime rate looked like, and then what that, in comparison to the U.S. Yeah, I think, you know, I was raised, my father was an arms dealer. Um, I've got I don't pe- think I knew that. Yeah, my father was an arms dealer in New Zealand. So I've been around guns my whole life, joined the military, was around guns in the military. So I'm a big believer in guns, and I'm also actually a big believer in the Second Amendment. Um, my sort of perspective is a little bit different, I think, than other people's perspectives. Um, when the Second Amendment was written, you know, the, the gun 
was how the family protect how you protected your family because you're not going to call the police because the sheriff might live 10 miles away and he's on a horse Mm -hmm. it's not going to help you very much and how are you going to call him anyway um and then you know it was how you got your food so you know you would hunt with it and that's how you got food for the house and so at the time that the second amendment was written the gun was probably the most important tool in the house for the family it protected the family it fed the family um, and everybody in the family knew the importance of it and probably knew how to use it correctly. Um, and, and, and that's, so that's sort of dealing with it. Obviously the mental health issues we have in the United States and, and, and all the other issues we have in the United States sort of, you know, um, exacerbate that thing. Right. So my thing, I'm a huge supporter of the second amendment. I just think that if you, if you carry a gun, you should know how to use a gun and you should know how to use a gun properly. Just a real simple example. You can get a concealed carry permit, right? Mm-hmm. Gives you a permit to carry a concealed weapon in public. I don't have any problems with that. You can use at, me for an example. <laughs> but at which point are you trained or do you have to show a proficiency in drawing a loaded firearm from a concealed position. And just so everyone knows that this carries through, like even like from a business standpoint for you, like I have my CCW and you've told me numerous times you would be better off taking your firearm and throwing it at the person because I don't practice with my firearm enough. And and I think that is just so logical. And of course it is. I've told you a number of times, like I'm just ready to sell my firearm. I, I do have a shotgun in my house. So don't come at me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeehaw. Um, but you're totally right. Like why would I conceal carry if I would end up putting someone else's life in more danger because I'm not good at shooting my uh, pistol. And, and right. And there are, there are, bunch of people out there whom I know who have concealed carry permits and they know how to draw their weapon from a concealed position and they practice and they train and they're proficient shooters and I would feel totally safe if I was somewhere and they had to draw their weapon to protect me or protect themselves or protect their families it's fine I have no problem like with that's that. who you want to have a CCW yeah. but the reality is it's so easy to get it that you don't have to be good at I have put three people through CCW courses because we do do them and just to see and show as an example, they've never shot a firearm in their life. They've never owned a gun in their life. They did the course, they passed the shooting test, and they now have a CCW. And they have no idea how to draw a firearm from a concealed position. So first of all, most people don't even know how to draw a firearm from a holster. But even if they do know how to draw a firearm from a holster, drawing it from a concealed position is a totally different skill set which you have to practice and it's muscle memory and there's a lot of things involved in that. And so, you know, I think a lot of people, I think have taken me out of context when they said like, oh, you're, you don't, you know, you're a turncoat, you don't support guns. I totally support guns and I totally support people's right to defend themselves. I believe everybody should have the right to defend Wait, themselves. Wait, what was the thing you just said? You're a what? A turncoat. What's that? Oh, what, what's that? Turncoat means like a trader. Oh, okay. Yeah, trader to the industry. Gotcha. I think it's an old English term. Okay. So anyway, so I, 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 I sort of, that's where I came from with the whole gun perspective. And I'm a big, I'm, I'm really about training. I'm like, hey, yeah, have a gun. Just be, be, be trained how to use the gun. You know, I, I, Seems I'll, take, fair. I'll take an example. A Glock 17, probably one of the most common handguns in the world. It is designed for one purpose and one purpose only, to kill a human being. Mm-hmm. That's the only reason that gun exists. It's a shitty target pistol. If you want to shoot target pistols, buy a 22 long, you know, revolver. You'll be much more accurate with it. It's not for hunting. It's offering. It's just designed to kill humans. So if it's a tool that's designed to kill human beings, we should at least have some sort of process that makes sure you're qualified to carry that tool to kill human beings in the event that you have to use it. Yeah. Why and do that, you think that we don't? <sighs> I, I think oh there's well now you, I guess there's probably like way too many reasons why the, then you start to get political into political reasons and you know people having their rights taken away and there's the Second Amendment and the Constitution there's a lot of things involved mm-hmm. and so I don't want to get into that because we'll it, be here all day uh, yeah and you just go down a, a, a rabbit hole but I think that you know I, I'll give you a prime example I, I was just on a motorcycle ride around Vietnam and one of the guys I was on the ride with is a Swiss gentleman. And um, both of his sons have done compulsory military service in the Swiss military. Mm -hmm. I think, and 
Switzerland is in the top, it might even be above America, but it's in the top four countries in the world for gun ownership per capita. In other words, it there are as almost as many or more people in Switzerland who own guns than there are per capita in the United States. Right. Yet in 2016, America had, I think, 11,000 criminal acts with guns. Switzerland had 35. Right. And remember when, so Genghis and I have traveled to Alaska together because my dad is a, a fishing guide in his spare time. <laughs> um, and so, but there are very few people, like first of all, that my dad would allow me to invite to Alaska. <laughs> and then there's also very few people I'd want to travel with. And so anyway, we went, we were like roughing it for, you know, we were in a house, but whatever. Um, but I remember when we were there, um, I think we like passed a girl that was like had a, a gun, like they were doing some sort of hunt or something. And I thought, you know, it's not so dissimilar from Texas where everybody knows how to, well, in most like, you know, farm areas, people know how to use a firearm. Um, and so I just got curious because we were there together and I was like, I wonder what the crime rate is like in Alaska. And the answer is it's rare. And it's because everyone in Alaska, it's like the, you know, wilderness for all intents and purposes. And, and everyone knows how to use a firearm there. So why would you break into someone's house if you know that they're going to shoot your ass? <laughs> so anyway, that just reminded me what you were saying about the Swiss guy. It's like, there's less yeah. crime when everyone knows how to properly use a firearm right well they, they're all trained in the military how to use a firearm that's the big thing and the, but the other thing like i think and i'm going off old statistics here but usually around thirty thousand to thirty-five thousand gun deaths in the united states every year 66 percent of those are self-inflicted suicide so 66 percent of all gun deaths in america are suicide so anyone that says we don't have a mental health problem is out of their fucking mind. Right. Right? Agree. So then you take the 11,000, you know, so and then you get these 11,000 homicides. Well, I think 80 to 90% of those homicides, maybe more. I think the numbers, it's an alarming number and I, I could be wrong, so I'm just throwing numbers. Yeah. But less than 500 deaths by, less than 500 murders or deaths, gun deaths a year in the United States come from assault rifles. Thousands come from handguns. Yet they want to ban assault rifles. Now, flip side to that, assault rifles are definitely the way that people can can mass murder, mass murder, and do a lot of damage really quickly, without a doubt. And and I'm not saying everybody should have an assault rifle. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is is that you should have the right as an American to own an assault rifle. You should just have to prove that you're competent enough to own it. That's right. And just the fact that you were born here to me does like I'm a helicopter pilot, right? So. But every, I have to do a biannual flight review. I have to do a medical every year. I have to go and test with people to make sure that I'm competent. A helicopter was never designed to kill people. It's just designed to transport people. And I have to jump through all these hoops, and rightly so, to show that I'm safe and proficient at using this tool. My thought process is we should just make the same thing for guns. Yeah, that that's seems all. logical. Yeah, that's what I call logical gun control. And I, I think they screw it up by using the word gun control. They should call it like... Responsible gun ownership. Yeah, just responsible gun ownership. Mm -hmm. Just as a responsible gun owner, you should know how to use your gun. It should be clean. As a responsible helicopter pilot, I should make sure that I'm proficient in flying the helicopter. You know, there's a helicopter we have that I haven't flown in a while. I haven't flown it and I won't fly it until I go out with someone who flies it a lot and makes, checks me out to make sure I'm proficient flying it. It's so crazy, and and I'm over here being like, we don't, we shouldn't get too much into it to, into politics, but unfortunately, it's just such a controversial topic that you can't help but talk about politics. And something that I found really like just interesting and bewildering is how quickly it was uh, procedures for abortions were banned. Right? Like, felt like it was overnight. Um, and and so in, in my head, I'm like, there's just no end in sight with this like gun thing. It's just been a topic for so many years. But then like we could just as women, I guess as a society, because men care about that stuff too, um, just be smacked in the face with this law. And then all of a sudden that's it's banned. But then that's not going to happen with firearms. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, what, if you said to me, Genghis in a perfect world, mm -hmm. what do you think should happen? Mm -hmm. Well, as a gun owner, and I would say every gun owner I know, if you said to me, hey, every gun you buy and every piece of it, every all ammunition you buy, we're going to put a 2.5% tax on that 
on that. And then that 2.5% tax is going to be used to run and maintain gun crime incarceration facilities. So if you commit a gun crime, it's a whole different prison. Have the military run those incarceration facilities. If you spend two years in a military incarceration facility, you will never ever want to go back again. It's, it, it's a whole nother world. If you get tougher on gun crime, the, the amount of deaths from guns would fall dramatically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially things like, you know, it's, it, it's like all these countries that get rid of guns. The problem is, is yeah, you get rid of the guns from the law-abiding citizens, but there's all these illegal guns out there that are causing the problems. And it's just, you know. Yeah. It's, it's politics. <laughs> it's, it's politics. There's just no way to like even talk about firearms without that. But anyway, I just thought that it was interesting that as a gun range owner um, that you have those sort of views because I feel like a lot of people wouldn't suspect that to be true. So I just like to you know bring it up. I feel like it's part of your story and just being like a logical human. I think a lot of people forget yeah. that that exists. Like common sense yeah. politics is actually a thing. And, and, um, and anyway... So great. <laughs> um, what else? I feel like we covered so much stuff just now. Like we just went from you running strip clubs, nightclubs, gun ranges, Africa, uh, Africa. <laughs> just, there's a reason why they call you the most interesting man in in the world, or at least, you know Vegas. But... They should call me the most indecisive man. <laughs> it's probably a bit too. That's true. I can't stand when you ask me where I want to go eat. Yeah, I know. We're terrible at that. Um, let's let's ask some like. <laughs> Less tough questions. What's your favorite restaurant in Vegas? Ooh. I can't. I personally, I don't know the answer to this, and I honestly can't wait. You can do a top three if you want. Top three. L'Atelier. Okay. Raku. What? I mean, I'm just surprised. I think those are great restaurants. I'm just surprised. And. Ooh, that's hard. Lakeside. Lakeside is legit. You're the first person to take me to Lakeside, yeah. and I'm like, why did I not? Lakeside is fantastic, and and there are other phenomenal. I mean, I, I, I've there's so many great restaurants here. It's ridiculous. The best dish I've ever had mm-hmm. would have been at Robichon, um, which was absolutely incredible. A friend of mine used to be the uh, executive chef there. That that place is phenomenal. Um, there's just, there's so many amazing, Chinatown has so many phenomenal eating spots. I know. I don't really like, I, I don't know if it's like a Texas thing, but we don't really have a Chinatown. And so when I moved here, it's like Chinatown is just a thing everywhere. Okay. So from now on, whenever we go to dinner, we're trying a new spot in Chinatown. Perfect. Yeah. But no, I feel like I trust you to order Asian food for me. Like when you're like, what do you want? I'm like, I don't know. You just order whatever it is and, I, and you haven't missed. So that's good. Sterling Club is good. Sterling Club is <laughs> You love good. Sterling Club. It's like that's our, our spot. It's our go-to. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of fantastic restaurants here. You know, what's your favorite activity to do in Vegas? Even if it involves motorcycles. Or... It is hundred percent riding dirt bikes. Where? I have a ranch about an hour out of town mm-hmm. in Searchlight. So I like to ride out in the Searchlight area. Um, out, you've been with me out on the river, going out on the river is a blast. Um, Vegas has so many amazing outdoor activities and people don't realize it. No, it's, it's crazy when I, because Texas is flat. There's you, you can't go hiking in mountains. Like even to this day when I'm driving and I'm like, Oh my God, this is incredible. But I've taken people who were born and raised here who've never been to Red Rock. And I have taken two people on their first Red Rock hike. And I'm like, how do you not? Like, I go out there all the time, just me and Zena, you know, by, by ourselves. It's, it's beautiful. Gorgeous. Mount Charleston, you'd be hiking in a forest. Yeah, you can go and we can go snowboarding. snowboarding. We live in Vegas and we go snowboarding at Mount Charleston. It's a 40 minute drive. Snow on the mountains today. I know. I saw Lee Canyon just got dumped on. I really want to go snowboarding. <laughs> we haven't been snowboarding together. No, so we've got to go. We'll do this year. We'll definitely go. I, I had a great trip to Mammoth last year. Mm-hmm. And I, so Mammoth, I want to do Park City, Eagle Point. Eagle Point's my fave. Shout out. We, yeah. we talked to the owner of that place because you had an idea to put a helipad at and the top. And do heli skiing there. Like it just doesn't stop. Yeah. Too many ideas, not enough time. <laughs> Too many ideas. Okay. So what, um, can you talk about any upcoming projects that you have? Yeah. So, um, I'm starting to do a, um, I'm working on developing a motorcycle rental slash motorcycle tour business mm-hmm. based out of Vegas. Naturally. So, um, doing adventure tours on motorcycles. Um, I don't know if we'll actually 
create self-guided tours so that people will just rent the bikes from us and do the tour themselves or if we will actually um have like tour guides. dirt bikes or motorcycles so they're motorcycles but they're adventure bikes so they can go in rough on rougher roads gravel roads um there's some amazing backcountry trails all through utah arizona and um just absolutely stunning capital reef national park zion national park bryce canyon valley of the gods mexican hat like these places are be- some of the most beautiful riding in the world and it's two or three hours from vegas but you think you could teach somebody how to like ride one of those bikes? With- most of, most of the people coming would already know how to ride them. Okay, it's just like there's a tourist demand for that kind of activity. Yeah, and then uh, I'm looking. I'm looking. Another thing I'm looking at starting a uh, sort of a podcast slash YouTube channel that's talking about inside Vegas. So I've been here for twenty. 20 years now, mm-hmm. and so just teaching people about the things we were talking about. Hey, you know. The Willow Beach is amazing. The Colorado River is spectacular. Um, you can kayak down it. You can, you know, you can paddleboard down it. You can take a boat down it. Lake Mead is incredible. Um, Valley of Fire is unbelievable. Bowl of Fire is unbelievable. Mount Charleston, snowboarding at Mount Charleston. All these things that are in Vegas that I think the majority of people who come to Vegas don't know. Like, if I'm going to a strip club, should I buy a bottle? Should I get a table? Should I... Should I just pay to get in? What's the best thing for me to do? Totally. Teaching, basically giving people insider information on the best way to experience Vegas. And if we, if you and I, between both of us, had a dollar for every time somebody asked what they should do when they come here, I feel like, you know. Yeah, we'd be sitting at our beach house in Hawaii right now. <laughs> that's I mean, exactly right. It's it, Yeah, everybody wants to know what to do and everybody's, you know, Formula One's coming. Mm-hmm. I've had so many calls about Formula One. Where do we stay? What do we do? Where do we eat? You know, how do I get tickets? How do I do this? How do I do that? So, you know, we have the corporate box at Allegiant Stadium mm-hmm. and um, same thing there. You know, people, are, I have clients coming in who book a football game and they're like, oh, we want to eat somewhere. Where should we go? Where do we, how do we get into a nightclub? So all those kinds of things is teaching people just the basics. I used to write a column for a magazine many moons ago about that. So I'm sort of rekindling that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. It's, you know, I think there's never, uh, there's a plethora of people who want to know what to do here. And I feel like the resources are like, I would, I would prefer to hear it from a local. I mean, that sounds kind of bad because I am a publicist, but then just Googling it and finding it, like I'd want to have like a more, someone who actually knows and does those things on their own rather than like an editor makes them go out and do it. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of people, you know, anyone that comes to spend time with me or comes to spend time with you, the Vegas that you and I will show them is very very different to the vegas they would get otherwise and i know that's why my dms are just full all the time of people who are coming into town because you know i mean i kind of invite it because i show that side of vegas like i I post it so i invite when people are like what should i do it's like well i saw that you went to that really cool place in the wind what's it called delilah yeah um their dinner is awesome. I just, I love that place. I love We've been there. It's yeah. so good. It's, it's really We've good. shouted out a few win properties yeah. uh, this segment. But okay, tell us, tell everybody where they can find you. So you can find me at Machine Guns Vegas. If you want to follow me on Instagram, it's Adventure K1W1. That's which Adventure is, Kiwi for everyone who <laughs> wants to know. But it's, but sub- substitute the eyes and Kiwi with the number ones. ones. Yep. Okay. And um, that's basically my motorcycle helicopter stuff. And, I know it's exciting content that you have too. So if you're into outdoor stuff, this adventure Kiwi is the guy to follow. This has been fun. It's been, been fun. It's been a journey. We've yeah. told some crazy stories, um, but yeah, we should you. we should record one of our dinners. Oh, for, I know, <laughs> I know. We've talked about that. We need to have somebody come in here into the podcast studio and just cater us like yeah. drinking because those conversations are the actual like interesting very juicy ones sometimes yeah. those get out of control so i'm very proud of us <laughs> yeah, anyway, i'm well. proud that we just like stuck to it and we didn't go off on too many like weird tangents yeah i'll just leave it at that thanks for having me thanks for coming on of course